Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck podcast series. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, has released new rules through the Small Business Regulatory Enforcement Fairness Act process that would drastically change the landscape of credit reporting. The regulations would heavily restrict credit reporting agencies' ability to use medical debt in determining credit scores of borrowers, as well as expand the definition of credit reporters, which will likely have measurable effects on internet content providers. Shareholders Leah Dempsey and Sarah Octorloni are joined by PhD economist Andrew Nagrinas to discuss the background of these guardrails, how they may affect different industries, and what legal and political challenges these rules face. Hi, my name is Leah Dempsey, and I'm a shareholder and co-chair of Brownstein's Government Relations Financial Services Practice Group. I'm a longtime advocate for financial service providers in both Congress and at federal agencies. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by my partner, Sarah Octorloni, who's the chair of our firm's Consumer Protection Group. Sarah utilizes her decades of experience in the government, uh, including her service in the U.S. Treasury Department and as one of the first employees of the CPB, including uh, work in their enforcement division. Um, I'm also joined today by Andrew Nigrinis, who is also a former CFPB employee. Um, he's a former CFPB enforcement economist, and he was there at the agency for almost six years, where he worked on over 70 cases. He specializes in application of economic, financial, and statistic analysis in the context of corporate litigation, regulatory actions, and compliance matters. Today, we're going to be talking about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and a new proposal that the CPB is working on. Uh, they recently started a subrefer process, which has outlined uh, their plans for rulemaking in this area. Their focus has been on medical debt credit reporting, something that they've been looking at for more than two years. And as part of that interest, they've put out many blog posts, press releases, and, and, and some data, which we'll discuss later in more depth. But the rhetoric around this issue, I believe is a good example of the difference uh, between the CFPB now post SCOTUS's seal law decision and some of the work that they did earlier on. You know, their focus on medical debt has very clearly been coordinated with the White House. They've put out joint press releases and we've seen really more of a political focus that has been coordinated with Congress and other agencies in a way that we haven't seen before the seal law decision when the agency director didn't serve at the pleasure of the president. In general, we've seen many political attacks on the credit reporting industry and on the collection industry. And at one point, uh, we even heard the CFPB director referred to the credit reporting agencies as a cartel. So the CFPB has been clear about where they stand on some of these issues, even before the rulemaking process has begun. In addition to the SBRIFA outline that just came out, the CFPB also previously announced a public inquiry into data brokers and have, have taken aim at their work as well. So that's kind of just the background of, of what's led us up to today and the proposal that we're going to discuss more in depth. And I'll maybe stop there and, and turn over to Sarah for 
some of your thoughts on, you know, CFPB trends in in moving forward with these types of regulations and, you know, whether they have the statutory authority to do what they're trying to do right now? Thanks, Leah. So the big effort that we've been focused on lately in um, among those of us who watch the CFPB and its proposed regulations has been proposed rules that are at the very beginning of the process and what we call the Sabrifa process, uh, where they include sweeping changes to the definitions of data brokers and consumer reporting agencies and their ability to utilize the data that these companies gather. Their inclusion in the Sabrifa panel is a continuation of a rulemaking process that began on August 15th. So the specific CFPB proposals expand the definition of data brokers and credit reporting agencies to encapsulate more organizations, and they want to expand the definition of these organizations based on the way that the data that the organizations disclose are used rather than the intent of why the data is being provided. Um, so this raises the stakes for any company in the data gathering and brokering industry so that they may be subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act when they aren't currently under the, the present scheme. So the regulations would limit the sale of certain data broker data for advertising or marketing, for the most part, constraining the sale of data to only those companies or persons to whom the consumer applied for credit, insurance, employment, housing, or some other service, or to whom the consumer otherwise authorized access. So it generally means that um, the type of telephone book data that we are accustomed to, name, address, uh, telephone number, that sort of thing, suddenly is going to be under very burdensome restrictions under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, whereas now people use that data um, for all sorts of business or marketing purposes. So another big issue that we're looking at, um, and I'm looking forward to talking to Andrew, our economist, about it, is that the Bureau wants to make all furnishers and credit reporting agencies suppress data about medical debts. And this is going to have, we believe, um, some very serious implications for the healthcare industry. So that said, and with that background, I thought we would start in and talk to Andrew about some of his views as an economist into the CFPB's Fair Credit Reporting Act proposals. So let's start with the first one, um, which is removing medical debt from credit reports. Andrew, can you give us a little bit more background on what it means or what results would happen if medical debts were no longer reported on credit reports? Well, first off, I would like to uh, to thank you for inviting me to your podcast. It's a great honor to be here to, to speak with you about this topic, which I think is very important. Medical trade lines uh, account for well over 50% of all collections, which means this is an issue that's going to have widespread market impact. With such large numbers, there's no way you can change this without affecting everyone else in the market. Now, how will it affect the market? Well, first off, those who have their medical debts eliminated are clearly going to benefit from this. And that is clearly, you know, that's pretty obvious. If you don't pay your debts and nobody's reporting it, you're going to be the beneficiary. However, what really needs to be taken into account is the fact that there are all these other costs that are not being taken into account. First off, 
When you remove this amount of trade lines off credit scores, you're making credit scores less accurate. And when you make credit scores less accurate, you make financing more difficult because you're less able to, to uh, precisely estimate the risk of the consumers you're lending to. Now, consumer finance markets are highly competitive. You see these companies, they make lots of profits. A lot of that has to do with scale. But in terms of the competitive environment, uh, there's not a lot of slack in the system. So if firms are unable to evaluate the risks as accurately as before, that's going to increase larger, that's going to create larger costs to those firms in terms of possible losses. And those losses have to be spread out to everyone else. Not because these firms are being greedy or not because, um, you know, any sort of maliciousness, but it's just the imperative of a competitive market. So what you will essentially see is that this action of wiping out medical trade lines is an implicit tax on every other consumer in the economy that looks similar. Another thing that could happen is the deterrence effect will go down. Currently, one of the major reasons you pay your debts is because you do not want a reporting to your credit score. I mean, anyone who's been out there trying to make a major purchase like a, like a mortgage or a house to get a mortgage, I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory. I don't think I need to dwell too much on this. But essentially, a large reason why we pay off our debts is because it's not a volunteer system. It's a system where there's a consequence, and that consequence is reporting on the credit score. Well, currently, there's three options. There's one, a firm can choose not to report a medical debt onto the credit score, and that's already happening. The second is civil litigation, and the third is reporting it on the, on the credit score. Now, civil litigation, I like to think of it as the atomic option. It's an extremely expensive, socially damaging process because you're going through an expensive legal process just to transfer resources. Well, of those collectors who are reporting on the credit reports, they are now being forced to make a choice. Do they just completely forgive or just not report the debt? Or do they go into full litigation? Ironically, this this action done by the CFP or being proposed by the CFPB might actually harm these consumers the most because some people who may have just had a credit score reporting or a credit report are now going to be taken into civil litigation because you can't just assume 100% of the people are going to be like, no, we're not going to report this to a credit bureau. We're just going to let it go. Some people will take it to civil litigation, which of course means more social costs or the legal system, etc. And then ironically, these debts will still be visible if firms decide to look at um, civil lawsuits. Now, there is some, not in all jurisdictions are civil litigation matters put onto the credit score, but they are available by public records in all courthouses. So that's another way that it can hurt things. Do we have any concerns that the medical providers, doctors, nurses, dentists, that they just simply won't get paid? if there's no consequences for unpaid medical bills? Yes, and the key thing to understand here is something we like to call elasticity in economics or competitiveness. Competitive markets are highly elastic, so it means when costs go up, competitive markets tend to push the cost off to the consumer. So if the medical collectors lose their, you know, an important tool to be able to collect their debts, then they will have to pass that expected loss onto those who are signing the debts for them to collect which are going to be your medical providers like your local doctors, hospital services, dentists, et cetera. 
since this is a highly competitive market, and I have never seen anyone claim that there's big debt collecting, you know, the way that there's standard oil. This is a very, very um, competitive environment and that there are many companies out there. They will have the imperative or they will have the pressure of the market to competitively price their services, which means they will have to pass on the new losses onto the final medical providers. Now, these people who are not paying their medical debts, they may be active in the consumer finance markets, but they're also in the medical market. And the problem is, is that medicine is market-based. Well, I wouldn't say that's a problem, but I mean, it's a feature of the American system that medicine is market-based, which essentially means is that that debt or that expenditure is somebody else's income. And what this essentially is going to do is going to reduce the income to the medical system. And a lot of it's going to be passed on. I mean, I, without estimates, I can't tell you exactly what percent, but I would expect it to be extremely high just because this is a very competitive market. Uh, the debt collection market is very competitive. So who is likely to be impacted? Well, put yourself in the shoes of the medical provider. You have customers. You're going to have to start relying on things like credit report before you provide medical or financing. You may provide worse terms of service. Like, for instance, uh, you may just give higher interest rates or have to put up more collateral, like a, like a higher deductible or higher copay. Or alternatively, you just might stop providing medical financing, in which case a lot of this medical debt is going to move, be moved to general credit cards or people will just have to go without. In which case, you've deprived uh, a very large percentage of the market a very, very valuable service, which is uh, the financing of medical care. And who's that going to be hurt? I mean, I don't think it's an outrageous claim to think that those who require financing the most are going to be hurt the most, which means we're talking about uh, not the higher income segment of society that can essentially pay out of pocket without having to borrow. So I am concerned that this is going to have very bad distributional effects. And I really urge the CFPB to do more research on the secondary effects, or as we economists like to call the general equilibrium effects, and not the direct effects of the particular consumer who's having a medical debt uh, you know, wiped out. Or not the debt's not being wiped out, but having the medical trade line wiped out. So who are the types of people that you would expect to see that are hurt most by the secondary effects of this rule? Well, I would say it's those who have a disproportionately high levels of medical debt uh, or medical trade lines right now. And I really apologize. I keep saying medical debt and medical trade line as if they're interchangeable. They're very different things. So the medical trade line. And there was actually a great report by the Urban Institute that did an analysis and they found that the major drivers uh, or the, the, the count, they did an analysis by the county level and they showed that the major drivers of whether a county has a high proportion of medical trade lines on their credit reports tended to be southern counties, rural counties, high percentage of African-American population, and a high uh, level of chronic disease in the Medicare data. So they use Medicare data because that's usually the only data set that gives you um, a great view of like what the health condition is of a subpopulation. But presumably counties with high chronic disease in their elderly population are also going to be counties with high chronic disease in the rest of the population. 
And of course, what, what counties are these? These are largely counties in basically the rural south. And what I have seen in other research is a major driver of this has been states that didn't uh, do the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Now, this gets into, you know, why those states didn't bring it to Medicaid uh, expansion and issues like that. I'm an economist, not a political scientist. It's not my place to really question the political decisions of different geographic areas of the United States. But the data is there and it's very clear exactly where this is most impactful. And you can even see it in the CFPB's research. They have one study about uh, medical debt in rural Appalachia, which of course covers a good chunk of the U.S. South. And then they have a, another study about the Southern United States that has a big section on medical debt. I can't recall whether they're explicitly calling out this region of the country, but they're very aware that this is the region of the country that's going to be impacted the most. And my concern is that this medical debt is not being wiped out. It's just not being reported. But that doesn't mean the market doesn't know it exists. And if the market knows that it exists, then that opens up the possibility, though often it's not legal, but in reality happens quite a lot, statistical discrimination. It's a form of price discrimination where you base prices or you base actions on the statistical properties of different populations. And you know, the market is not foolish. It has enough of a memory that, you know, analysts can look up the Urban Institute's research and same thing with the CFPB's research and be able to essentially price in um, medical debts inaccurately without the medical debt being explicitly reported. Got it. Leah, do you have any questions? Sure, thanks. So one of the things... I noticed when reviewing the proposal and reviewing some of the press releases is this claim that um, the collections industry and others are, are, you know, reporting false medical debts for the purposes of, you know, forcing consumers to pay what the CFPB, you know, seems to indicate are completely inaccurate debts or, or false debts. And that, that, that was confusing to me because the Fair Credit Reporting Act has a lot of mechanisms in place for if inaccurate debt is reported. You know, the, there is the plaintiff's bar, there's the private market factor of, you know, to Andrew's earlier point, if, if a collection, a, a third party collection agency was so sloppy that they were, you know, purposely reporting fake debts, it's very likely that the doctors or hospitals that they were working with would probably fire them and, and find a more reputable collections agency. Uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act also has some substantial fees associated with being sued under it. So, you know, that was one claim that I thought was perplexing. Another was the fact that they have indicated, you know, in congressional testimony, in the press, in several arenas, that medical debt has no predictive value at all on creditworthiness. And I, my question for you, Andrew, is, is that correct? And, and does their data support some of those uh, statements that they've made? Well, if the statement is that medical debt has no predictive value, they cannot justify that statement based on their own internal research. If they're justifying that on something outside of the CFPB, then they should say that. But the closest I've ever gotten to, to figuring out where this claim comes from is a CFPB, a 2014 report, 
where they study the removal of medical debts and the effect on uh, credit scores. So the example they used in the study, suppose you had two consumers and they had a 780 credit score, they each did. And then they got impacted by a trade line and the trade line drops them down to 660. Based on their estimates, medical debt is less predictive by about 16 to 21 points. To, so say the 665 credit score should really be a 680 credit score. Let's just use round numbers to make things easier. Their statement is essentially that medical debt is less predictive, which essentially means that the 780 person should drop to 680 with because of the medical debt. But the same amount of debt that was not a medical debt should be a 665 credit score. That's very different as a statement from saying that medical debt is not predictive. It's very predictive here. It's just not as predictive. So the question is, what are we supposed to make of this information? Well, one has to keep in mind that a 685 consumer is very different from a 780 consumer. And if you don't report the medical trade line, then that 685 consumer is going to have a 780 credit score, even though they're a 685 risk. These numbers mean things. And these numbers are essentially the probabilities of an adverse credit event, like a, a delinquency. So what will happen? Well, first off, you're going to have people who have 780 credit scores who are really 680 credit scores, and they're going to be given credit as if they're 780 people, but really they're 680, which means they're more likely to default or go delinquent. Now, consumer finance markets are uh, quite competitive. So those 680 people who are masquerading as 780, getting credit on 780 terms, are going to be losses. Some will pay off, some will default, but they've been priced at the wrong level. So firms, to protect themselves, are going to have to start treating those 780 consumers as not as good risks. So now you're going to have legitimate 780 credit scores being given worse terms of financing, and in actuality, 680 credit scores being given much better terms of financing. So your credit score has become less accurate, has become less precise. And as a result, people who have nothing to do with this market, but they can't differentiate themselves from the poorer risk, are going to be given worse terms of financing. And that's why I like to think of this as an, an implicit information tax that's being brought on to those consumers who had nothing to do with this medical debt market. So this claim that medical trade lines have no predictive value cannot be supported by the CFPB's own research. In fact, they say the opposite. They're just saying it's not as predictive. So Andrew, that makes me think about The, um, the data that suggests that individual household bankruptcies are very often caused by medical debt, I think somewhere in the 60% range. So if 60% of individual bankruptcies are associated with medical accounts and the financial services market has no visibility into the existence of those medical accounts, Is it, is it right from an economic perspective to think that if enough people file for bankruptcy with 780 credit scores, that that's going to make the credit score almost useless? 
I would say that would make the credit score less useful. Useless is a is a highly you know how big does an effect have to be before it's useless? Um, it's definitely going to hurt the credit scores because, as I said earlier, a very large amount of medical trade line or a very large amount of trade lines in collections reports are medical trade lines. So this is not something that's only going to impact 1% of the market where the magnitude would be small. This is going to be a large magnitude. How large of a magnitude is going to be difficult to tell. It's really important to keep in mind that what's happening here is with the credit score being less precise, the CFPB is fiddling with a very, very important piece of the financial infrastructure that supports consumer finance markets. One, they're making collections more difficult which is very, very important in terms of being able to make consumer finance work correctly. And two, by reducing the information value of a credit score, they're really going to impose an information tax on everyone else in the economy. This frustrates me because it seems like there's a, there's a much simpler solution here. What the CFPB found was a very interesting result, that the medical debts are not as predictive by a small amount, 15 points, as other types of trade lines. But nobody is required to use the credit score in making lending decisions. This is not a government regulation or a fiat. This is just highly recommended, and firms use it because it's quite useful and predictive. They often have their own proprietary algorithms to make their own decisions. Simply by telling the market that this discrepancy exists and making it well known would allow market mechanisms to come up with new credit scores that would put separate weights on medical trade lines versus other types of trade lines. So that in the example they gave in the paper, one person drops 780 to 660 and one person drops from 780 to 685. And that should be the equilibrium because every firm is being pressured to basically price risks better because that's how you make profit by being able to extract more profit out of those who pay you back. But you're also being squeezed in that you have competitors who are going to offer better terms as well. And also you avoid losses by not providing great terms of financing to bad risks. So in a lot of ways, it's very perplexing why they want to wipe out these trade lines, because essentially it's the opposite of what we normally hear, which is more information is better. Here they want to give us an equilibrium of less information and tell us that it's going to be better for everyone. Well, I find this hard to believe. And uh, it doesn't fit with economic logic. For instance, they had a 2023 study and they had a study in 2014, and they consistently find that when you remove medical trade lines, uh, credit scores go up. Well, whenever you remove any negative information from a credit reporting agency, credit scores could, should go up. This is not a very profound result. This is uh, only a question of magnitude, not a matter of direction. I wouldn't expect them to go down, right? Now, I have uh, issues with those papers in terms of how they measured the magnitude, and I feel like they're overstating the measurement. But those are technical issues for, uh, for economists to argue over. Thanks, Andrew. That's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, this proposal that we saw in the Sabrifa outline also has a number of other sweeping proposals related to the Fair Credit Reporting Act that go beyond medical debt. So maybe we can just spend a few minutes on those as well. Um, I'll also note that in the meantime, since the Sabrifa outline was put out, the CPB also recently issued a proposed rule on 1033, which overlaps with some of what they're trying to do in regards to data brokers. So, you know, in total, what they're trying to do under this proposal in conjunction with that really seems to be creating a lot of complexity for those in that market. 
Uh, in a nutshell, what the CFPB is trying to do is limit certain data broker data for advertising or marketing. Uh, they're subjecting certain data brokers and those working with them to new Fair Credit Reporting Act obligations. They are seeking to expand the definition of a consumer reporting agency and simultaneously defining what a data broker is. So uh, potentially having far-reaching consequences for impacting a number of groups that are not now complying with the FCRA. And since a consumer reporting agency may only furnish a consumer report to an individual that has a permiss permissible purpose to obtain the information, there's a number of unintended consequences that really could impact a whole host of, of entities that uh, would now be subject to comply to this and, and impact it. So in short, the CFPB is trying to shut down the internet. <laughs> um, and, and what I mean there is that the, the use of public data under this proposal would be completely changed in, in the way that we're operating today. And maybe I'll, I'll turn it over to Sarah and, and Andrew to see if, if you have any thoughts on, on what the CPB is doing here and, and what some of the unintended consequences might be. Thanks, Leah. So Andrew, from an economist perspective, when you think about how individual personal data, such as name, address, telephone number, is being used in marketplaces like the internet, I mean, how do you go about evaluating the consequences of a change to the availability of that information? This is a very difficult question, mainly because as I saw the rule, uh, and keep in mind, I'm not a lawyer, it seems extremely vague and open-ended. So I will just try to give you an idea of the size of the pie we're talking about. So there's this whole kind of new idea in economics that's been kind of bouncing around uh, called the intention economy. So like a lot of great theories in economics, it's something that's been thought of before and given a new name. So therefore, it's a great new idea. And of course, I'm being a little facetious. But the attention economy, the idea is that a lot of platforms, the classic being the newspaper, is there to give you content at free or near free and then supports itself by selling advertisements. So I use the newspaper because that's an example uh, most people know or maybe I'm just dating myself, uh, but the entire internet is kind of based on this model. If you looked at most of the, of the internet, it's essentially free. I don't pay to use Google. The point though is that the attention economy, the idea is that these websites are provided for free. They provide advertisements to fund themselves. Essentially it's the newspaper model uh, without making you pay for a subscription. So David Evans has a great calculation using 2019 data. I'm just gonna use it because um, because the problem with GDP numbers is it values market transactions. But when the price is zero, the market transaction value is zero. So the question becomes, how do you value something like the internet? Well, the idea of this uh, research stream is to value the internet by looking at the uh, time cost that one spends on the internet. And we all know we spend too much time on the internet. So in 2019, there were in the United States, 514 billion hours spent at the internet. He uses a cost per hour of $13.60, which essentially is from the Department of, of Transportation, and then it was divided by half to take into account for various things like taxes. So essentially, David Evans comes up with, in 2019, that the internet is worth $7 trillion. It's not a minor thing. 
I think those numbers are a bit exaggerated. I use Bjorn, I can never pronounce his name, I'm sorry, he's an MIT professor, he's a great professor. Brynjolfsson and O, they come up with a 2011 number of $928 billion or $1.2 trillion in 2023. And I did that by just finding a regular consumer price index deflator. So essentially the internet's creating about $1.2 trillion of value every year, which really shouldn't be that surprising. If you think an hour of your time is worth about $13, $14 for the median American, and they're spending 514 billion hours, that's a lot of time. Well, most of that is being provided for free. Let's not forget that. So to give you an idea of the effect this rule could have, one of my favorite uh, web pages, don't laugh, is a web page called Mr. Money Mustache. And uh, essentially, it's a personal finance blog. And it can appeal to consumer people like myself who have a background in economics and finance and has pretty decent financials. So when I'm on there, it's able to serve up ads for a prime credit card or some other really good financial product that fits my profile. Another consumer who's reading this blog in order to be able to find uh, information on how to improve their finances will go there and have an ad targeted to them for, say, subprime credit cards or for some sort of debt relief program or something like that. This data brokerage rule, if it creates a situation where the ads cannot distinguish between the different types of consumers and their different backgrounds, you would get back to the classic problem of advertising where you're serving up advertisements and you don't know if it's being very effective or useful. When you're talking with numbers like $1.2 trillion, a 1% reduction into this market, we're talking is $12 billion a year less going into it. And I'm just picking 1% completely out of my head. It could be a 10% reduction, in which case is $120 billion in lost economic value because of this rule. But let's say 1%, 1% is a small number. So only one out of $100 is affected of advertising dollars or one out of $100 reduction in internet consumption, because it's not advertising dollars, it's internet consumption that's being measured. Well, that would make this one of the most expensive rules to ever been promulgated by the US government. And this is the potential danger here. I'm not going to be an alarmist and say that the internet is ending. I'll, le I'll leave that for Leah, that's fine. Uh, but as an economist, in more measured tones, reductions in the amount of ad dollars that will go into the internet may very well reduce the amount of money that's going into creating content on the internet, which means that will be reduced the value that consumers get. And any sort of reduction when talking about such large numbers is going to also create a large number, which, you know, that's a great math theorem for you, by the way. A very large number when you multiply it by a percentage still produces a large number if the number's big enough. That's why I would say that the CFPB needs to be very cautious here and needs to make sure that they really understand how this market is going to feed into the uh, the attention economy before they start fiddling with the rules. Because if, if these data brokers end up in as FCRA reporters, and again, I'm not a lawyer, because I understand FCRA is very onerous reporting requirements as a law designed back in the 70s for, the, uh, for credit reporting agencies. This could be a problem going down the road. So I had a smart friend tell me once that if you're not paying for a product, you are the product, which I think means there's an attention economy, right? So if 
suddenly the ability to target marketing to people using this header data is no longer available. What are some of the ways that internet content providers might react to that situation? Well, this is purely speculative on my part uh, as to how they would react. I would just think that the main effect you'd have to look overall is that if you shrink the amount of resources coming in, you would get less quality coming out in terms of an output. Well, thanks, Andrew. And I'm going to stick to my analysis that it's the end of the Internet, even though I only have um, research that's over a decade old to support that and totally kidding. Um, but I do want to I do want to ask Sarah um, a question about the CFPB's legal authority here. And, uh, you know, whether they have the ability to do many of the things that they're trying to do in this proposal, and if you see any obstacles that they might have going forward. I think that they have, and they, meaning the CFPB, has some serious obstacles in both regulating the reporting of truthful and accurate medical account trade lines, as well as taking credit header data like name, address, and telephone number and turning it into this highly regulated piece of data under the FCRA. Um, And it's something called the major questions doctrine. I got to meet one of my great legal heroes, Patrick Morrissey, who is the West Virginia attorney general. Uh, I met him about two weeks ago and definitely got a chance to thank him for the wonderful job that his agency did in a case called West Virginia v. EPA. This is a Supreme Court case that basically held that a federal administrative agency has to have a very clear delegation of authority from the Congress in order to weigh in on what's called a major question. So under the major questions doctrine, the Supreme Court will reject an agency's claim of regulatory authority when the underlying claim of that regulatory authority concerns an issue of vast economic and political significance, and also that Congress has not clearly empowered the agency with authority over the issue. So when you start talking to Andrew about what happens if this rule reduces the utility of the internet by 1% and it creates billions upon billions of dollars annually of lost value. I mean, that seems to be pretty squarely in the realm of vast economic significance. And then likewise, when you take a look at these medical trade lines and no longer showing them on credit reports, you have, I mean, I would say both economic significance, if you impact the way that medical and healthcare providers Uh, are able to be paid for their services, as well as the political significance. Because as Andrew noted, it's not evenly spread throughout the U.S. who's affected by medical debt. Um, And so when you can statistically show that red states are more affected than blue states, then you almost definitely have a political issue at that point. And so when an agency isn't really clearly given the authority over these two issues, Um, and are told explicitly by Congress to regulate in this area, you definitely fall into something called the major questions doctrine. I I would be very surprised 
if the current conceptualization of the CFPB's Fair Credit Reporting Act rules went much further, um, just because of the shadow of the major questions doctrine, it should really hold them back. So Leah, with my uh, very negative views on whether or not this FCRA proposal should go through as currently contemplated, I mean, what do you see as the next political administrative steps? What should people who care about these issues be thinking about right now? That's a great question. And, you know, we're heading into a presidential election year. So as, as much as we're in silly season right now, we're going to be getting into even sillier season where there's a constant fight for sound bites and rhetoric that, you know, aligns with making voters uh, happy. And, um, you know, people are, of course, just like all of us on this podcast, are very sympathetic to people that have medical debt. People are very sympathetic to people that have student loan debt. But that didn't mean that the administration had the legal authority to forgive student loans. And it took the Supreme Court striking that down to stop the administration from doing that. But it was too late in many instances, election-wise, because they, they, they ran on that talking point and, you know, kind of went for goal, not necessarily caring whether they, they later lost in court on these issues. And I think we're going to continue to see that not only in this proposal, but in a whole host of agency actions over the next several months that are really aimed more at uh, fulfilling campaign wishes and, and goals, and then potentially looking at other impacts later. Um, the other challenge is that in a presidential election year, there are timelines for the Congressional Review Act for rulemakings. So uh, this rulemaking, if it is finalized before the summer, it may not be subject to the Congressional Review Act, which is um, the ability of Congress and any new president to overturn a prior agency's action. Uh, otherwise, you know, as, as I mentioned, as I started the podcast off with, seal law has changed the construct of the Bureau and it no longer has a director that serves for five years. The director serves at the pleasure of the president. So if there is a change in administration, there will certainly be a new director and new priorities and all of these rulemakings will uh, potentially go in a different direction. So all of those are things that the Bureau is thinking about as they move forward. They are, as we mentioned in the beginning, just in this briefer process, they still have to propose either a notice of proposed rulemaking or an advance notice of proposed rulemaking. A, a large group of industry um, stakeholders sent a letter urging the CFPB to engage in a, an advance notice of proposed rulemaking because they don't think that they had enough information to sufficiently respond during Sabrifa. As, as we mentioned, a lot of these definitions have been left open. This is a complex topic that people were forced to respond to in a very short amount of time. Industry has asked for some more time. They've asked for some more information. Whether the Bureau is, is going to listen to that call, um, I'm skeptical of that based on their previous actions. But I guess we will see if and when they next move forward with the proposal. So, Sarah, you know, once they do propose a rule, what are some things that our clients and others should be thinking about in terms of their options and 
um, priorities in the comment process and, and otherwise? So I think I would say that I am um, of the optimistic variety, and I believe that participating in the notice and comment rulemaking process, providing good data, good information, um, and thoughtful responses and criticisms of proposed rules, I really believe that that makes a difference. I think that we've seen some positive outcomes in many other CFPB rulemakings, uh, specifically the Fair Debt Collection rulemaking, where thoughtful commentators provided their analysis and we actually got some reasonable rules out of the process. Not saying the industry loved every rule, but on balance, it ended up being you know, reasonable and supported by data. I would really hope that this credit reporting anticipated rulemaking would also be a solid participant in that notice and comment process and that that team at the CFPB looking at the issue would take our comments seriously. I mean, we're really lucky to work with an economist like Andrew and to also have industry participants who have been great about sharing data and providing us real information. It's that kind of um, work that we've been able to put into our comments that has, I think, achieved really successful results. So I would say anyone who is concerned about the Bureau proceeding along this path should really get in touch with their trade organizations and make sure that their trade unions are watching this issue, making sure that they're planning ahead and even gathering data. So I think that we who work with collections and lenders have a pretty good understanding of how credit reporting and the use of data affects our businesses. I would really like to see some of the internet advertising companies that so heavily relies on credit header data to get involved in this question, to be able to provide us some solid statistics about the importance of targeted marketing um, and how that relates to their ability to provide free content. I would love to see some of the people who are uh, tangentially affected by this rule also step up and talk. So for example, the local dentist, uh, chiropractors, the people who rely on medical debt, trade line furnishing in order to uh, support their businesses and their small businesses. Um, there's a lot of people who will be affected by this rule who you wouldn't initially think so because you see Fair Credit Reporting Act and you just think about the big three. But in fact, these are issues that um, are probably going to affect every American who consumes health care. Um, every healthcare provider, and of course, anyone who enjoys the free content on the internet. And maybe we'll just, you know, end with with some of Andrew's thoughts. Uh, when you think back on on when the bureau first came to be, you know, when when Sarah was there opening the doors, we know that they were supposed to be a data driven agency. And as we spend a lot of time talking about today, they're um, not necessarily fulfilling that uh, that prior goal. Uh, do you have any thoughts on going forward, what people should be thinking about in terms of providing economic analysis on some of these proposals to hold them you know, to the standard that they laid out for themselves? Well, the CFPB is, uh, has some great economists in the research office. Make no mistake about that. The issue is what kind of research should go into a rule. Now, the CFPB prides itself on being a data-driven uh, agency that's going to research the implications of what they propose, or at least I hope they do. 
Well, it's not enough just to say removing people's medical trade lines increases their credit scores. I mean, that's not a very meaningful result. That's exactly what you would expect to happen. The issue becomes, where is the research onto the other knock-on effects? What happens to uh, people who were paying their medical debts? What happens to the medical providers who are using a lot of these debt collectors to provide a very important financial service and a very important piece of financial infrastructure? And before you start kind of fiddling around with this incredibly complex market machinery, you should have some, you know, the CFPB has a great research office, has some great economists. They should appoint them to be able to research some of these questions before they propose such a wide sweeping uh, regulatory change. So you're saying that they should study the impacts of the unintended consequences? The fact that I'm able to think about these consequences means they're not unknowable, but they are unintended. So I'm sure nobody at the CFPB thinks what we should do is uh, increase the cost of credit to those who have nothing to do with the medical debt industry. That's clearly an unintended consequence, but it is definitely foreseeable. And that needs to be researched in a more kind of comprehensive manner. If anything, this is an argument that the CFPB needs more economists and to be able to rely on the advice of the economists more, uh, more deeply. So Leah, thanks for having us on to discuss these important issues. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Sarah, for those insights. And, and thank you very much, Andrew. I, I, you know, I feel like we really only dipped our toe into this very complex issue. And there's, there's probably a lot more that we could say both about this issue and, and several other things going on at the CPB. But appreciate the time today and look forward to working with you both in the future on more of these issues. Thanks, Leah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.